Can you talk about some sleep strategies our listeners could put into place to help them with overall good health, but also to help their adrenals? For sure. The the first one is to to do it. <laughs> right. Sometimes People talk about said than done. Quite honestly. <laughs> well, so the the next question I ask in response to that is if someone can't sleep or they won't sleep. They're two different things. You know, some people won't sleep and they've not, they just not prioritized it. There's an old idea that if I stay up a little later, if I get up a little bit earlier, I can get more stuff done. Now the data is so clear that no, you can't. You'll spend a few more hours spinning your wheels, but you're actually not getting useful things done. So I was just reading a great book talking about how among all the top executives, it was at once a badge of honor to talk about how little sleep someone would go on but now it's a badge of honor to talk about how much sleep that they get because they've figured out that the more you're sleeping, the more the more productive you are. It's the exact opposite of what we were taught. So, yeah, that's the first part. If someone won't sleep, you need to realize that if you're, if you're not sleeping because you're trying to get things done, it actually doesn't work. Then there's those that can't sleep. Oftentimes, it's simple strategies. Our, our brains are regulating that cortisol timing. And one of the biggest cues that tells our brains when it's time to wake up and go to sleep is just what kind of light we're around, how intense the light is, and whether it's the the, the golden reddish amber hues of sunset or the more bright, vivid bluish hues of dawn. And our indoor light is closest to the light of dawn, but it's not the same intensity. So the hard part is that indoor light and then also light from computers or whatnot, our brains don't really get morning versus night. So easy first step is just getting getting some light outside in the morning. You know, a half hour of sunlight with an hour of waking tells your brain for the whole day, okay, now it's time to wake up. And in about another 16 hours, it'll be time to go to sleep. So that's a simple trick. So what about screen time? What do you advise your patients? Like by when's the cutoff for screen time? You know, definitely an hour prior prior to bedtime. Uh, and a trick you can do, too, along with being off of computer, television, screens, is to use use a red light. That's a closer replication of, of the light at sunset. There's red light bulbs available, um, Amazon or anywhere you'd get light bulbs. And just put those in your reading lamp and make it a habit of about an hour before bed, shut off the computer's TVs and just turn on that red light. And you know, read a, a normal normal book and, <laughs> and unwind and go through some rituals. But that'll really cue your brain into, okay, now it's nighttime. Now it's time to shut off cortisol and you sleep more effectively from it. It seems like cortisol is something that just keeps coming up again and again when it comes to good adrenal health. And you mentioned in your book that a bad cortisol slope is more dangerous than smoking. Can you just talk a little bit more about what a cortisol slope is, what that means? Sure. And how we can just really take care of our cortisol so it works for us instead of against us? You know, the, the book was educational for me as well. I learned a lot writing it and researching it. <laughs> I, had the, I had the general ideas, but when I got really deep into the literature, I was amazed. So that particular study, I was in the room that I'm in right now talking to you, and I was just in my, little, my studio, my work study space. And this was several years ago, and I was compiling the manuscript. It, it was late at night. I was uh, I was neglecting my sleep. I was not sleeping because I thought that I was going to get more done. And I stumbled across this study. So they, they tracked British civil servants between 2002 to 2006, and there was roughly 4,500 people, um, men and women, a uh, pretty big distribution of ages for adults, mostly later 20s to uh, later 60s, so big, big range. 
And they did a lot of gathering of data of, you know, how, what someone weighed, what their blood pressure was, their cholesterol, you know, questionnaires, do you smoke or not? And they also measured their morning cortisol versus their nighttime cortisol. And the morning should be high and the nighttime should be low. And you can imagine that going into a a line that drops down as you go to the right. They call that the cortisol slope. And then they just watched over the years, you know, who, who died unexpectedly. And then they went back afterwards and said, oh, okay, what were the things that we measured that best predicted that unfortunate outcome? And it, it blew me away because people who were otherwise healthy, they were you know, non-smokers and lean and no, no issues with blood cholesterol or blood pressure, but they had a problem with their cortisol slope. They were not stress resilient. They were dying faster than the stress resilient smokers that had a good cortisol slope. So that adrenal rhythm predicted death more so than smoking status did. And I saw that and I'm like, oh my goodness. I was under the belief that I think a lot of us were that, you know, I, I wouldn't smoke. I wouldn't do things that were overtly dangerous for myself, but I pushed it a little bit here and there and, you know, mm-hmm. skimp on, skimp on self care, skimp on sleep. And I, I thought, hey, I'm, I'm healthy enough. This really shouldn't matter. And, and the data suggested otherwise. The data suggested, no, that's probably the biggest thing that matters. So, yeah, that has a strong impression on me. More than obesity. I think in your book it said, like, normal cortisol slope, total depth was 138. Smoking, it was like 136. And then obesity was 133. So it even surpassed obesity. Yeah. It was worse than anything for, for, for total death risk. Maybe we could talk about obesity for just a moment because it's something that uh, you've spent a lot of time researching. And, you know, there's obviously a huge crisis going on in the world right now with respect to obesity. And I listened to an interview that you did and you mentioned how back in 1990 in Mississippi, the obesity rate rose to 15%, which was astonishing then. Ten years later, by 2000, 15% was no longer the highest for the country. It had become the lowest. Yeah. And they had to rewrite the whole color code. And now you're saying that no state's lower than 20%. It's pretty shocking. And the big dogma about obesity, I think, is part of what holds us back. The dogma is that, forgive me for being crass, but that people are fat and lazy. And that that's, right. that's what we're taught. And that's what people are told to believe about themselves. And the data, the data just does not support that. There's no credible scientists that think that obesity comes about from bad behavior anymore. And numbers like that make it very clear. So yeah, the, the rate of obesity has gone up from to where it was quite rare, like in 1990 to where it was a small minority to where now it's, it's the majority. And the predictions are that by 2030, we're expecting some states to be at two thirds obesity. And the other thing people, people often think, okay, this is Americans. You know, we, there's a lot of, lot of negative judgments against us. No, this is global. The predictions are that by, by that same time frame, that the majority of adults on the planet will be obese. There's some freaky numbers that I've not put out in a formal way, but I've, I've done some, you know, napkin calculations. And if you add up planet Earth, all the major wars since the year 1800, uh, World War One, World War II, Civil War, you know, Persian Gulf, you name it, every single one, Think about just the, the tragedy of all the lives lost and think about the economic impact of all the costs. So you can actually make numbers out of both of those. Like what's a rough estimate of how many died and how much was spent? All the wars and all the planet. And what we're projecting in the next decade from obesity 
is bigger numbers for both. It's more deaths and about six times the cost for healthcare of like more than any war from 1800 until now. And the rate of increase that we're seeing and also the way we're seeing it show up among animals in controlled environments, it has nothing to do with behavior or willpower. It's our bodies collectively being driven into the storage state. And it's, it's a survival mechanism that's no longer helping us. And the, mm-hmm. and the problem is that our strategies of blaming people and, and saying, hey, look, you know, you're, you're screwing up. You've got to try harder. You've got to starve yourself and you've got to go do a lot more exercise than you're used to. All those things just worsen the stress response. You know, the, the shame and the blame and the, mm-hmm. the big radical drops in food intake and the big increase in activity. All those things make the core problem worse. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm so jazzed. You get a brand new message saying, no, you, you don't need to beat yourself up. You've got to actually soothe yourself and take right. care of yourself and make your body feel better. That's the way out of it all. And going back to uh, the three factors you mentioned, the processed food, the polluted world, the pressures of daily life, how do you protect yourself environmentally from so many pollutants? You know, for myself, I, I live north of Los Angeles. Because of the drought going on here in California, we have a very big, beautiful park, which in the middle is a school. And so part of the solution to not have to water the park was to go and completely spray it with Roundup multiple times, which is what they did. They sprayed one day, then all the neighbors found out what was happening, and we all rose up against the park and wreck and demanded that they never spray Roundup again. And that's something that's so common and it's just everywhere. How do you protect yourself knowing that that toxic load is just everywhere? You know, it's pretty wild, but that, that roundup, there's a, there's a breakdown product from it called two comma four comma D and it's pretty toxic pesticide metabolite that stores in our fat tissues. Well, if you went down to Antarctica and you cut a mile deep in the ice, you took a core sample from that, you can find two four D in that ice sample. Yeah, so there's <laughs> there's Not no nothing glyphosate, right, which is linked to autism and Yeah, there's nothing completely clean, but there's two sides to there's two sides to toxicology. There's there's what's coming in and what's going out. Those are the two big things we think about. And we can't we can't completely stop what's coming in, but we can lower it. You know, the our biggest source actually is is air, is indoor air. That's like the biggest volume of waste that we take in. You could be next to a place that's polluted. You could be next to Three Mile Island, and being inside if your window's closed is more dangerous air than it is having your windows open. <laughs> really? Because so, I closed all my windows when they sprayed around that. <laughs> you know, whenever you, whenever you can, keep your home open so it off-gasses. Air purifiers make a huge difference. And just minimizing what's, what's coming in that you're breathing, that, that's huge. But the other big part of it is what's going out of your body. And the biggest factors there are just good, good hydration. You know, you were asking me the question about what, what to do. And I was taking a drink out of a steel, I was taking some distilled water out of a steel flask. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. hydration is one of the biggest ones that's important and often, often underutilized. And, and we're eliminating liquid waste from, from urinating, from being well hydrated, but also from sweating. So, um, dry saunas are wonderful for your body. Um, I live in the Sonoran Desert, and a lot of the year, we don't need no stinking dry sauna. We <laughs> can go outside and sweat pretty regularly. But sweating, a good sweat on a daily basis is huge, hugely cathartic. The other big elimination of waste is breathing. So deep breathing, diaphragmatic breathing exercises, all aerobic activities, just speeding up respiration. You end up turning over much larger amounts of 
polar compounds, many alkaloids. And then the last big thing is just our, our liver, our bile, and our bowels. So, you know, regular, regular, complete daily bowel movements, high amounts of fiber in the diet. And many fibers have been shown to have properties that are powerful for trapping wastes in the stool and making them not reabsorb back into our bloodstream.